Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Welcome, everybody, to the Spirited Advocate Podcast. Uh, we are truly privileged today to be joined by Tom Mass, the president and CEO of Agave Loco and this great brand, Rum Chata. Uh, awesome, awesome brand. And uh, the great thing about today is uh, Tom's got uh, a great history and great experience from working with Hiram Walker to Jim Bean, uh, you name it. And uh, he is uh, certainly an industry veteran, uh, stand-up individual, uh, really a statesman for, statesman for the industry. And uh, also a member of the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States Board. So, Tom, thank you and welcome. We appreciate you being here. Uh, have, did you ever think you would be doing a podcast, you know, 30 years ago when you first got in the industry, when you were going to DePaul? No, I, uh, podcasts are, are very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just learning about them. I'm a real history buff. So my podcasts have all been about World War II, Rome, um, the English uh, um, Dark Ages, etc. So I, I finally am going to upgrade my podcast to the modern day. Yeah, no doubt about it. So I'm a history history buff as well. Love World War II history mm-hmm. and all that. So uh, you you went to DePaul and uh, how did you how did tell us tell us the story? How did uh, a little bit about your career and how you ended up in the industry and uh, uh, just give us a, a great glimpse of that, if you would. Yeah, so um, my start in the industry is interesting. My father was a distilling engineer uh, from the 50s on, and uh, he was one of the most prolific distillery engineers in the world. He actually built distilleries in eight different countries around the world. Um, distilleries like the Galliano Distillery, the Chartreuse Distillery, Seagram's VO, uh, yeah. Mount Gay. Um, he was very good at, at not only building distillates but rehabbing them. He could he could taste spirits and tell you what was wrong with your still and fix it. And uh, one of my first uh, forays was in um, 1967. Uh, he was building a Canadian distillery in Canada for uh, what was Martin at the time, which is now Constellation. It was for Canadian Mist, and they had um, decided they they had a brand that they were buying bulk alcohol. They decided they needed to build their own distillery. So I was 11 years old, and I was the errand boy for the summer for a month. Um, there were six engineers that lived in a cottage, and uh, they would they would eat breakfast in the morning, and I had to clean up all the mess. But then when I was done, I got to go to the distillery and kind of run errands for people. And that time, there were no fax machines, no cell phones. So you had a warehouse that, would, that spanned almost a quarter a square mile that they oh, had to wow. get messages the messages from one end to the other. So they gave me a bike, one of these little little bikes with a banana seat on and a big basket in the front, and I would run messages back and forth. No OSHA at that time because I had no hard hat. I was running around with shorts and a bike. So, But um, one day, the stillman said, we need to fire up the still. Uh, can you go get yeast out of the refrigerator? So I went to the, to the, the yeast, the, the refrigerator, uh, pulled out a box of cake yeast and went over to the still or the, the fermenter. And um, he had me helping unwrap the bricks of, of yeast. And as we're doing it, he said, how old are you? I said, 11. He said, well, you just made your first batch of whiskey. So uh, ever since then, it's been in my DNA. And uh, I really enjoyed the liquor business. What happened was then when I went to school, 
um, uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin, and uh, my last semester, my summer job was a, a replacement salespeople a person for Gallo in Chicago. I learned how to sell and uh, got a job with Brown Foreman right out of school and uh, the Jack Daniel division. And that was wonderful for me because I, I got to learn about a tremendously well-marketed brand right off the, right off the start. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that Jack Daniel did was they paid for my MBA. So I was working in Chicago and I uh, went to DePaul at night school and uh, was paid by Jack Daniels to get my MBA, which worked out very well. So that was really my start. And then I rolled into the, the, the second stop after Brown Foreman was Hiram Walker, which is then became Alan Demack, which was Canadian club. And uh, then after that, I went to Jim Beam. <clears throat> my last big a company job was I was the director of Bourbon Worldwide for Jim Beam uh, from a 90 until uh, 2006. 2006. Yeah. And Tom, do you remember uh, at, at Hiram Walker, uh, and it's still there with the Canadian Club Distillery, the uh, the the dining room there? At the oh, God. Yes, yes. It's, yes, it's, yes, it's I, amazing how the world has changed so uh, dramatically since yeah then. we had we had a corporate dining room there which was pretty funny um there was a 12 o'clock seating if you were a director level and above uh and there was a one o'clock seating for the vps and above and if you had a an honored guest uh you got to go to the one o'clock seating um so one day there was a lady named uh kathy keaton who is bob guccione's um uh, live-in uh partner and Kathy Keaton, Bob Guccione started Penthouse Magazine. Uh, Kathy Keaton was a former pet of Penthouse, but she was brilliant. She started Wired Magazine back before anybody knew what computers were. And she was coming in to sell us advertising at Wired from Wired. And I took her to the one o'clock lunch and I got a demolishing letter from the VPs at Canadian Club that I should not bring a person of that type to the one o'clock lunch because it was a formal lunch. Yes, it was very interesting. So we used to make jokes about the 12 o'clock lunch was a fun lunch. The one o'clock lunch we called the morgue because it was I, all the BP and above. Yeah. And back in the day during Prohibition, there was a lot of things going on uh, back and back and fro across the river. To, yeah, uh, Canadian Club was one of the most bootlegged whiskeys because it was Capone's favorite. And uh, Hiram Walker, I'm not sure if they still have it. They had a bootleggers museum in Walkerville, Canada, which is just north of Windsor. Uh, that was phenomenal. And one thing I learned about, uh, and we talk about being history buffs, um, I was a huge, I'm a huge history buff of the liquor business. And uh, Prohibition is really, Al Capone really should be seen as the father of the liquor business in the United States because he kept it going during Prohibition. And um, it's amazing the brands that succeeded after Prohibition that were, the geographics were all determined by Prohibition. Think about this. Scotch is very big in the Northeast. They bootleg Scotch in from, from England. Canadians are big in the, the North and the Northwest. They bootlegged it in from Canada. Tequila yeah. was big in the Southwest. They bootlegged it in from Mexico. Rums are big in the Southeast. They bootlegged it in from the Caribbean. And it, it still inspires the, the drinking habits of many of the people in the, in the United States today, um, you know, 70, 80 years after Prohibition, 80, 90 years after Prohibition ended. It was incredible. But Al Capone loved Canadian Club, so he would bring it in, and they had all these different ways of getting um, alcohol across the, the border. And it, it's really amazing to, to, to look at all those old ways. So No doubt about it. And your time at uh, Jim Beam, tell us about that. We were yeah, so briefly I, colleagues. 
Yeah, um, I came in, in two, 2005. 2005, the end of 2005. 2005. Yeah. I came into Jim Beam originally. Uh, my father and I actually tried to buy a liqueur company in the late 1980s. Uh, there was a company called Mohawk Liqueur out of Michigan that we, we tried to buy. And I had to leave Hiram Walker to, to put that bid in because it was a conflict of interest. Uh, it took us about two years. We, we were outbid. We didn't get it. So I had to do some consulting work in the late 80s and uh, early 90s. And I ended up uh, working with Jim Beam. And I worked on brands like Hot Damn Butter Shots under the Kuiper liqueur brands, Cactus Juice, uh, brand development, flavor development. Uh, and then one day in, in 90, I was asked to join the company. Uh, I was actually on the DeKuyper brand for one day. I was a group product uh, director. Uh, and then Beam bought seven brands from Seagram's, Ron Rico, Wolfschmidt, Lord Calvert, et cetera, Kessler. And I was asked to be the liaison manager to bring those brands in, put them in our uh, sales force, teach the people how to sell them and, and, and repackage the brands. I did that for a year. And then the next stop was uh, the bourbon portfolio. And I was uh, involved. They had just they already started the small batch development, but I was the one, the brand director, when we introduced small batch uh, in 1995, uh, or actually 1994. That's not Creek, um, Basil, Hayden, yes. and those great brands. Yeah. Yes. And that was really the start of the bourbon boom. Um, we, as the leaders in the bourbon industry, Jim Beam's the leader of the bourbon industry, um, we were the ones that really, we wanted to elevate the image of, of bourbon. Um, and actually, it's interesting because I had actually started on this type of thing, elevating the image of American whiskeys. Back when I was with Jack Daniels in 1984-85, we came out with Gentleman Jack. And it was because we were selling it, let's say, $16, $17 a bottle for Jack Daniels at the time. Single malts were about $20 a bottle. And we said, we are as good as a single malt. Why shouldn't we be able to get $20 a bottle? So we developed Gentleman Jack in 1984-85, in, uh, introduced it, and that was really the start of the premium bourbons. You had Blanton's come out at that time and so on and so forth. So uh, it was really interesting to be involved in the development of bourbon as to what it is now uh, from the, from the, the ashes in the 1990s, because bourbon was really, was really not a favorite brand. Down and out. Yeah. And Tom, were you there like in the seventies, Canadian club or not Canadian club, Canadian whiskey was going through yes. the roof. Oh, 70s, yeah. Canadian Club in, in 1980, I believe, it peaked, might have been 79 and 4 million cases. You had 4 million cases of Canadian Club, you had 4 million cases of VO. And what happened there was really interesting. VO, Seagram's VO and Canadian Club got into a bidding war because it was very similar consumers, very similar price, very similar liquid. They got into bidding war with each other and they both were advertising the range of 3 to $4 million a year. So you had $8 million of of advertising in the Canadian whiskey category back then. But then they got into a price and bidding war and we had to cut our, our advertising budgets to, to fund the bidding war, the pricing war. Um, the only brand that kept advertising was Crown Royal. And Crown Royal, people didn't even consider Canadian, it was Crown Royal. And it's really unfortunate what happened to the Canadian whiskey category because we did it to ourselves with this price war, totally bringing the pricing down, stopped advertising, and a whole generation of people were not advertised Canadian whiskey. So it, it ended up being a declining category. In Crown Royal doubled down in Texas, right? That's where... Yes, it, yes. Is that right? Well, they, 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 they just Crown kept Royal Seagram's... Took off. Yeah, Seagram's was smart. They didn't ever take their foot off the gas. And, and they, they had a Canadian whiskey, which was the best one out there, but they didn't advertise it as Canadian. It was just a, a great whiskey. And you know, to this day, there are people that think Crown Royal's a bourbon. It's a whiskey. They, they don't even consider it a Canadian, you know, so... Absolutely. Yep. And I think it was 2006 or seven. 
uh, when Crown Royal went on TV and Corpus Christi. Yes, yes. Yep. Corpus mm-hmm. Christi. Yep. Mm-hmm. 1996, I think. That's right. 1996. So, Tom, you've spent uh, a lot of time in your career uh, uh, marketing. How has marketing changed uh, uh, with the industry from your early days to today uh, well, obviously you've got social media yeah we're uh contending with the covid19 crisis where mm-hmm. you know it's changing the marketplace so much uh yeah. how has marketing I, changed in, in your experiences could you yeah. just tell us a little bit about that i think that that a couple of things have really changed um you know i started my career with jack daniels and there they had a, a marketing philosophy called illusion of discovery which was minimalist advertising let people know a little bit about your brand and they'll tell everybody about it. Well, that's social media, basically. Tell your people a little bit about your brand and they'll tell everybody about it. Yeah, word of mouth. Yeah, when, when I introduced Rum Chata, I used the same strategy because I had no money to advertise. Uh, I found out about Facebook from my brother who was a, a consulting engineer for Apple. He told me about this thing in 2005, six called Facebook. I'm like, what is Facebook? And um, I was. it was funny, we put up our Rum Chata uh, Facebook account, and I was my first like at the Ramchata site. So we wow. found out that we use the Illusion Discovery strategy uh, on Facebook, where we put out recipe videos and little things, thinking, well, when people find it on Facebook, they're going to tell everybody about it. And it, it really, really worked well to propel the, the brand moving forward. I think the biggest thing about marketing and spirits now, which has really happened in the last 10 years, is the premiumization of spirits. Your, your old pricing scenarios of Fifteen ninety nine whiskeys and to twenty ninety nines. I remember when we brought out Knob Creek, we were so concerned when we had to go over twenty dollars a bottle. Um, Basil Hayden's at the time was twenty four dollars a bottle. Basil Hayden's is doing fifty times more business than we did ten years ago, uh, and it's it's forty dollars a bottle. It's just it's amazing the premiumization of spirits, um, which they always should have been that way, but the retail tier was so strong they could keep the pricing down. And I think that has led to tremendous marketing of the brands because you have so much more profitability in the brands now uh, to be able to spend. So, how do you think uh, the the COVID crisis? You know, it, it's it's changing the marketplace. Uh, like, like the, big, seen the biggest the biggest concern we have uh, is owning a craft distillery is the mixology boom which hit is just being decimated by this because think about this: you go into a a restaurant you used to like to sit at the bar, have a Manhattan or an old fashioned or something like that crafted by a great mixologist. Now that mixologist is wearing a mask and gloves, you're not going to sit there at the bar and want to enjoy that drink. You're going to want to get away from them because of that. And, and we don't know how long that's going to last. And it's really going to throw a, a, a monkey wrench into the development of craft spirits because that's where most people learn about uh, the nuances of a new rye whiskey or a gin or whatever it may be is from that mixologist. And that's the really unfortunate thing. The other part is obviously is the esti- the industry is estimating 30 to 40% of the on-premise operations will go out of business because of this lack of business and not being able to stay in. And unfortunately, these are people, a lot of the, the bars and restaurants are started by families that don't have corporate support behind them and they're not going to be able to, to, to exist past the next six months. And it, it's really unfortunate. It's You wish you could do something about it, but there's so many of them, that it's, it's very hard to do it. So. Yeah, it's going to be tough. We've tried, as you know, uh, uh, to support our restaurants, taverns, and bars with uh, uh, getting cocktails to go at- adopted for them, uh, hopefully as a lifeline for them. Well, the cocktails to go, obviously, you talk to the to the restaurant tours now, and so much of their profitability is distilled spirits. 
and wine, uh, you know, because they, they make 15 to 20% on their food, they make 100% on their alcohol, beverage alcohol. And if they don't have that in addition, and they can only serve 50% of their patrons because of capacity restrictions, the, the economics just don't work for them. So they need to have cocktails to go to be able to support uh, support their profitability. Keep their head, head above water. Yeah. Uh, over the last 10, 15 years, the spirits industry, much to do with the premiumization, has captured uh, market share, uh, certainly from the beer consumers, a little bit of wine as well. Uh, is it fun for you to have watched that and do you anticipate yeah, and I, I, that will go on? Exactly. And I'm, as I said, I'm a historian of the business and I look at it this way. Sex in the City started all this. And you go, how did that happen? Well, think about this. In the mid-90s, uh, craft beers were big. Um, when I was at Jim Beam, we, we actually were partnering with craft beers. We bought a winery. We were worried that the, the, uh, the distilled spirits business was going to go south. Sex in the City introduced us to the Cosmopolitan. And how did those women like to drink their Cosmopolitans? Up in a martini glass. Yeah. It taught people how cool it was to walk around with a martini glass and a, and a fine uh, cocktail. Uh, that became, when we were at Beam, uh, we know this, the Appletini. We, we created Apple Plucker, which became the Appletini, which uh, became the hottest martini on the, on the planet for about four or five years. And it taught people even more to drink out of a martini glass. Well, then it evolved when we were doing small batch into the Manhattans and, and things like that. They're drinking out of martini glass. And it just elevated the, the alcoholic beverage experience on premise, uh, not only in an image sense, but the pricing these, these restaurants were getting you know, $14, $15 for a martini, $14 for a Manhattan. Uh, unfortunately, in 2008 and nine, that's when the mortgage crisis hit and the bars and restaurants couldn't sell $14, $15 drinks anymore, but it had already uh, exacerbated a, a, a uh, trend towards high-end classic cocktails. And, uh, and it, that's just evolved into bourbons, uh, whiskeys now, gins, high-end gins. And um, uh, the other benefit, I think, is the growth of Patron. Uh, Patron was probably the first volume brand to sell in the $30 bottle range. And I, I credit them with, with elevating the cost, uh, the, the cost consciousness of people in. That must have been in the mid, mid 2000s. Yes. Yes. 2000s, exactly. Yeah. Patron, Patron hit 2 million cases and they were selling for $35 a bottle and nobody had ever done that kind of volume at that price. I mean, before that it was always Jack Daniels and Crown Royal, which were the leaders and they were around 23, $24 a bottle. At a high volume rate, so I credit Patron, I credit Sex in the City, uh, the, the growth of that business, and it just it elevated the image of spirits with consumers, and the millennials just took hold of it, and and you know that's where we are now, which is wonderful for for no a spirits doubt. producer, yeah, no doubt. So 2006, you step out and you decide to go on an adventure and and start Agave Loco and uh, this great brand. Mm -hmm. uh, Rum Tell us about that experience, the anxiety that came with that, uh, yeah. the challenges, and and the exciting so things. Two thousand five. Yeah, two thousand five was my last year at Beam. Uh, we had just bought uh, a bunch of brands from the Allied Demec breakup, uh, Makers Mark, Lavoisier, Sousa, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and and there was some new management at Beam, and I, I was not in the in the range that I wanted to be. So we parted the company. Uh, I had really done well in my retirement funds and some real estate. And I actually, I was about 50 years old and I couldn't retire and I thought I would. And then I found out that most of my peers, all of my peers were still working. So when I get uh, in Chicago, we go to Cubs games on Thursdays, there's one o'clock Cubs games. 
I would have tickets to a Cubs game at one o'clock on a Thursday. And I'd call up my old buddies and say, hey, you want to go to a Cubs game? And they go, hey, I got to work. And then I'd have a tea time at Kemper and I'd say, I want to go play golf. I got to work. And I, I said, I don't have anybody to play with here. I'm retired, but having no fun. So I started to do some new product development work, hoping that would keep me in the industry. And um, uh, my first brand was Agave Loco. That's why we call the brand, uh, the company Agave Loco. Uh, I was going to either develop it myself or sell them off. Uh, and the second brand I, I worked on was uh, Rum Chata. And I had tasted horchata, which is a Mexican, Spanish, originally a Spanish beverage, but the Mexican version is the one I'm pattering mine off of, which is a rice, or they call it rice milk or a rice-based product. Um, liqueur, right? Liqueur. Uh, well, the horchata actually is a non-alcoholic product. Okay. And if you go to a Mexican restaurant, uh, and I call them taco joints here in Chicago, you can get burritos, tacos, whatever, they'll have this jar that's about mm, maybe three, four gallons on the counter. And it's got this white liquid in it. And I say to my, my sons, what is that stuff? They said, that's horchata. I said, what does it taste like? They said, well, buy some. So we tasted it. And it tastes like liquid rice pudding. It's rice, water, sugar, cinnamon, and vanilla. And uh, I tasted it. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool taste. I found out that the Hispanics and the Mexicans drink it because it takes all the fire out when you're eating hot foods. Because it's, it's very, very good. So horchata, horchata, I found out, was the number two per capita consumed uh, product in Mexico after water. I mean, more than beer, more than Coca-Cola, which surprised me. But what it is, is every family has their own recipe for horchata down there. Everybody's grandmother makes it and they make it and store it in their, their fridge and pour it out and drink it like crazy. So I was like, well, I think this would make a really good liquor, uh, liqueur product. Uh, and I came up with cream because I wanted to do, uh, regular horchata has no cream in it. But I put cream in it because I knew if I was going to produce it, I have to sell it at a high price. And if you didn't have the cream in there, you couldn't get the luxury price you needed. So I developed it in my kitchen um, from the from horchata recipe and started mixing it with different things. Uh, found out rum was the best. Uh, I had a product uh, designer, package designer that I worked with at Beam named Pete Donato, And he and I were talking one day and he came up with the name Rum Chata. And I said, well, that's a great name. Uh, so we trademarked the name and... Uh, made the product, and I was trying to sell it to a couple of the big uh, multinational liquor companies, and I had some discussions with them. And uh, my wife said to me, uh, "Well, what would happen when I do these products in my kitchen? My uh, neighbors would come by, and I'd taste them on. Say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that?" And my wife said, "You should sell this yourself because everybody you taste on this stuff likes it, and nobody has ever said, nah, I'm not interested.'" Um, and, and as a result, I went out and, and started to produce a product on my own. And I always tell people, I don't know if, it, if she really thought it was a great idea or if she wanted me to get me out of the house because when I retired, I was underfoot for 24 hours a day and she was not real happy about me being around all the time. It's a win, so, win, win. It's a win, win, win. Yeah, yeah. So um, I had to find a place to produce the brand. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a relationship with a dairy that produced alcoholic base up in Wisconsin uh, because we had done the Starbucks cream liqueur at Beam. And we put a company in business called uh, Galloway Company up in Wisconsin. Uh, they made the cream for they made the cream uh, Starbucks. For Starbucks yes, yeah, yeah. And they they are they're a very good cre uh, dairy. They make um, dairy base for uh, a lot of condensed. I think they have about seventy five percent market share of the sweetened condensed milk uh, dairy base that goes into Hershey's chocolate. They make they're they're very very large commercial dairy. They've got five doctorates in in microbiology. I couldn't afford that type of technology, and, and they were really good at helping me get established and get started. 
Well, the big thing was I'd been involved with a couple of brands, cream brands in my career that what the biggest problem with a cream brand is it can curdle on the shelf. And that's usually caused by uh, pH problems when you produce the product. Uh, so I knew I can't bring out a cream liqueur and, and have production problems. So I went to one of my mentors in life, my father, who was uh, retired at the time. He was 80 years old. And I said, we got to find a place to produce this. And he said, well, I know all the bottlers in the, in the country. He said, I wouldn't trust them with my money. To, to He said, they're great bottlers. But uh, if you want a clean facility and, and product quality, we got to put our own plan. I said, okay, what's that going to take? And he tells me. And uh, I took my IRA money and he took his IRA money and we, we put a bunch of money into a plant. Uh, and I said, but dad, who's going to run this plant? He goes, well, I am. I said, dad, you're 80 years old. He said, well, you're bored. I'm bored too. I said, I got to have something to do. So uh, we created this, this plant in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, which is 20 miles outside of Milwaukee, 60 miles from the, the dairy. So we have very close uh, confines to the, where the dairy source is. And we started bottling rum chata there and uh, started bottling in 2008. Uh, to sale, but we didn't get into widespread distribution until 2009, um, which interestingly enough was right during the mortgage crisis. And as the brand took off, we couldn't get money from anybody. Uh, we could, the, the banks were all like, we don't have, we, we, we can't give any loans. And um, we had, the brand went from two, the first full year, <coughs> we sold it. the first uh, national distribution we got into within 2009, we sold 2,000 cases from August till the end of the year. Second year, we did 17,000. Third year, we did 64,000. Uh, fourth year, we did 275,000 cases. And when we were hitting those numbers, uh, we had to buy glass, and the glass was six months out before we get paid for the glass. We had no money, and we ran out of money, and nobody would give us working capital loans because of the, uh, the mortgage crisis. And I would take I would take a purchase order in for a million dollars from Southern Wine and Spirits, who at the time was a $15 billion company. And the bank said, this collateral is not good for us. And I'm like, where am I supposed to get the money? So where do you go? You go to your credit cards. So my father and I borrowed money off of our credit cards to finance the business. And it was unbelievable. You know? all, all with an idea and a taste in the kitchen. Yes. Right? yes exactly. uh, pretty, pretty amazing. What would you... Uh, what, what, what do consumers typically mix rum chata with? Uh, do you well, the interesting the thing is rum chata is uh, 65% of our consumption is straight on the rocks. Uh, that's the way people like it. They, uh, it, makes, uh, it mixes phenomenally well in coffee. That's about 5 to 10%. Uh, but what happened was uh, when I took the product out, I tried to sell it as a horchata first, as a high-end horchata thinking, okay, there are all these Mexican restaurants in the world and they don't have an after dinner drink. If you go into an Italian restaurant, you have Sambuca, Lemoncello, Amaretto, after dinner. Mexican restaurants did not. You got a gap to fill. Exactly. So I'm thinking this is a no brainer. I walk into these Mexican restaurants with a alcoholic horchata. They love the flavor of it, but they go, this isn't authentic. We don't mix alcohol with horchata. And they didn't take the brand. So I'm sitting with 900 cases in my warehouse going, how am I going to sell this stuff? Uh -oh. Uh -oh. So I started to then go out to regular bars thinking I wasn't going to have a lot of luck there. And all of these millennials told me this stuff tastes like the, uh, like cinnamon toast crunch, like the milk in the bowl after you eat some cinnamon toast crunch. So knowing that I was going to have to sell this stuff, I went online. Well, first of all, I went and bought a box of cinnamon toast crunch and made it and said, sure enough, it tastes exactly like it. So then I went online on Amazon and I bought, little cartons of cinnamon toast crunch cereal the ones little plastic bowls with a foil top single serve yeah 
And I would give one of those bowls out with two bottle purchase and say, when you sell a shot, put this shot there and put one of these little cinnamon toast crunch morsels on top and sell it as a cinnamon toast crunch. And it took off. And the cinnamon toast crunch shot. Became, that is brilliant. It became, well, this is the interesting thing. It became the biggest shot. Who doesn't like cinnamon toast crunch, right? Exactly. exactly. So um, the, 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 the brand took off and I go into a bar about six, eight months later. And I said, uh, do you sell rum? Oh yeah, we do the cinnamon toast crunch here. So that's great. They pulled out a bio, bottle of fireball. And I said, you don't make, fireball doesn't make cinnamon toast crunch. They go, yes, it does. This is how it's made. It's half and half. And I'm like, well, I invented the drink and we didn't have any fireball. I found out the bartenders put fireball in because they wanted to boost the alcohol level to get men to drink. it. Uh-huh. Because when it was just rum chata, it's only uh, 28.75 proof. They wanted it to jack it up to 30, 40, 50 so that men would drink it. And that's what made it popular. I never would have done that. Sure. And that's how we get it up with a drink that is half fireball, half rum chata. And the Cinnamon Toast Crunch was the best thing for rum chata and the worst thing. It was the best thing because the rapid growth got us distribution we could never have imagined uh, and, and really propelled the brand. The problem was when the brand finally, when that shot finally faded, which is about three years ago, uh, we were kind of classified as a shot drink, and uh, we suffered a couple of years because of it. Was trying to get a, get away from the image of, of rum chata only being used in the cinnamon toast crunch, uh, and we have now, which is which is really good. But um, the the long story short is rum chata mixes with pretty much anything. It's 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 almost like a dairy base because you got the rice, cinnamon, sugar, vanilla. You can put. Uh, flavored vodkas in there. You can put amaretto's nuts products in there, mixes with whiskey. Uh, we, in fact, one of the, one of the bartenders, funny enough, called it the first two or three years rum chata was out. He said, this is the bartender's best friend. And I said, what do you call, say that for? He said, because if I have anything on my back bar, that's not selling. If I mix it with rum chata, everybody will drink it. Oh, and fine. I said, well, that's an interesting, interesting thing. So, uh, it was, it if was, you. Yeah. What a, and tell us, tell us about uh, Agave Loco, uh, and of course, uh, Dancing Goat uh, Distillery as well. Yeah, so so Agave Loco, uh, interesting enough, that was my first brand. I actually brought it out in 2008. It is a tequila, 100% agave tequila. I had looked at the tequila business and said, I think this tequila business is going to evolve like single malts did out of the scotch business. You've got all this tequila. Uh, at that point, Patron was really leading the charge with 100% agave tequilas. I thought there would be some esoteric offshoots, uh, niche uh, opportunities in the tequila business. Uh, so I thought, well, Agave Loco is a blend of 100% agave tequila, Repsado tequila, and six different types of peppers. And it was a very subtle blend. And I thought that the the herbalness of the of the agave mixed with the spiciness of the pepper, it's a really interesting product. Um, I was right and I was wrong. Strategically, the the evolution of the tequila business happened. But it happened with Mezcal, and I never saw that. Uh, Agave Loco as a brand, there are about three or four jalapeno or, or pepper-style products. Tanteo is one. Ancho Reyes is another one. And none of us have done very, very well. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, they just haven't done that well. But not, not anything like the Mezcals have. So uh, Agave Loco is, is a brand. It was one of our first ones. That's why the company's named that. But um, it, it's kind of gone by the wayside here. So. Um, the, and that's been, that, that was very complimentary in going into the Mexican restaurants, of course. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, yeah. the interesting thing is, is, is I want to take credit for inventing the jalapeno margarita because there were no jalapeno margaritas before we were promoting them seven, eight years ago. 
and it was hard to get restaurants to do it, they found out they could buy cheap tequila and model their own jalapenos and save half the cost of, of agave loco. Uh, and if you go into 80% of Mexican restaurants, now there's a jalapeno margarita on their menu. And we really invented it, but we didn't get credit for it because our product costs too much. Um, but well, it is what, what it is. you do today. And uh, exactly. a lot of consumers out there can appreciate that because yeah, uh, yeah. nothing better than a little bit of jalapeno. Yeah, yeah. And uh, tell well, us about Limit Limit. Uh, dance and goat. So the dancing goat. Uh, story. I think your son is the master of this yeah. stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. So my father and I started talking about this. Uh, my father, unfortunately, passed away in 2016. About 2014, we started talking about creating our building our own distillery. He'd built so many distilleries around the country and the world, uh, but we never owned our own. So we own a bottling facility, but we didn't own a distillery. So we started the planning back then. He unfortunately got sick and, 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 and that went by the wayside. But the idea was to have a multi-generational facility uh, for our family because uh, he was a distiller from way back when. I've worked with some of the best distillers in the, in the world. Uh, Frank Bobo from Jim Beam, uh, Booker No, Fred No, Lincoln Henderson from Brown Foreman, all people I worked with in the past. Titans. I, I didn't run the stills, but I was right there with them on the mashing and things like that. So I consider myself a pseudo distiller because I'm right, I've been right there with them. Um, and then my son was going to learn from my father and take over. So um, my son and I have taken it by the reins after my, my father passed away. And we, we built a 17,000 or 19,000 square foot distillery to make whiskey uh, and gin in um, uh, Wisconsin. We wanted to do it in Wisconsin because that's the heritage of where my family's from. My father was was born and raised there. Uh, first first generation immigrants from Germany, his his parents were. Um, so we have a, a affinity for Wisconsin, and we built it near Madison, Wisconsin, because not only did my did I go to school in Madison, but my mom and dad met there. So it's kind of like the heritage of of the oh. uh, the, the company work. So we we created the the distillery with four distinct. Um, uh, areas that we wanted to focus on heritage, which was our family's heritage in the business quality. Uh, we want to be known as the house of nineties. We only want to bring out branded products that are, that are, that are, will get 90 ratings or better. And our limousine rye, for example, has had five ninety ratings. Our death store gin has had two ninety ratings. So we are, we are pushing out uh, what we call 90 rated products. Uh, innovation. Uh, our limousine rye is the, is the only nationally sold rye, American rye that's made and aged in vintage cooperage. Uh, we use um, uh, old bourbon barrels, old rye barrels, uh, once used to, to, to age the, the rye, and then we finish it in limousine oak. Uh, very innovative for the rye business. Nobody else is doing it. And, and that's a, a reason we think that we've gotten the 590 ratings because it makes a tremendous cocktail. Um, in the and then the last, thing, the last thing we have is celebration, one of our mantras. And celebration is, and Booker No taught me this, and Booker, no, I love to I love to work with him, and and this is the way he said it because I love to talk like Booker. If anybody that can't have fun making whiskey ought to be dead. So if you can't have fun making whiskey, there's something wrong with you. And, no uh, doubt about and it. That's, and that's that's all started when about. you were 11 years old. Think exactly. About that. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's kind of in our family DNA, and and I wanted to pass it on to my son. He's he's yeah. This is the funny story. You know, uh, distilling is basically organic organic chemistry, right? Yep. So my son goes to the University of Iowa. Nick went to the University of Iowa, and he had to take organic chemistry, and I, he couldn't pass it. I think he flunked in his first semester. He got a D, finally got through the classes. I said, don't you wish you've been – and now he probably could teach organic chemistry because he's, he's doing something he loves, right? I said, don't you wish you knew about distilling back when you're, you were in college and you were taking your organic chemistry? And he said, Dad, I knew a lot about distilling, but it was only what came out of the bottle. 
when I drink. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It just it just underscores what a great industry yeah. this is. So I'm I'm I want to tell you I'm very very bullish on on uh, the the craft distilling business because uh, I, you know I watch these millennials walk around with rocks glasses with whiskey neat and it's wonderful to see that they're just enjoying the nuances and the flavors of, of really really well crafted whiskey. So we actually we the first uh, distillery builds nineteen thousand square feet. We're actually doing a seventeen thousand foot um, uh, addition now to uh, raise our distilling capacity by a factor of 10. And this is the really cool thing for Wisconsin. We just were approved for uh, the only real rack house in the state of Wisconsin. People are aging whiskey now in barns, but there's no fire suppression. There, there It's an insurance nightmare if that thing goes up on, on fire because there's no fire suppression. Uh, or they're doing it in their temperature-controlled warehouses, which if we do it in our warehouse is temperature-controlled, uh, it's 65 during the, during the winter and, and 80 in the summer. It's only a 15 degree temperature change. When you want to age whiskey, you want to have the five below zero in, in the winter up to the 90 degrees in the summer because that's when the whiskey goes in and out of the barrel so much, uh, which we know from Kentucky. So we actually had to bring experts and fire chiefs from Kentucky up to Wisconsin to talk to the state to get them to allow us to do an open air rack house. And we were finally given approval. We will be the first one ever in the state of Wisconsin. So we're really proud of that. Good for you. Congratulations. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. You'll have to rely on the discus fire protection guide, of course. Exactly. <laughs> we will. That we is always we important. Def- we definitely have that. We definitely have that and use that. Yeah. Tom, you've, you've seen the industry change a lot uh, with, with the COVID, with the pandemic that we're all grappling with. Uh, do, you, do you worry about the industry as we sit today, you know, four, four and a half, five months into you know, you don't worry, you, you don't worry about You don't worry about the industry because through COVID, the really good brands are selling very, very well at retail. Um, we, we take, uh, we're, 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 we're very happy that Ronchata is doing very, very well at retail as people go home and, and, and cloister at their, their own home with their families. Um, the real problem I see is, is what's going to happen to the on-premise and, and the decimation of on-premise and what the great things that the mixology trade was doing for the business. Uh, and that we just don't know when that will come back because, um, you know, as we see with flare-ups across the, the, the world. Um, you can't open up on-premise too fast. And uh, the longer it goes, is the, the worse it is for that, that business. And uh, that, to me, is going to be the biggest change, is what does on-premise look like uh, a year from now? Or it, it, hopefully it's only a year um, uh, and when it opens back up again full-time. Let's hope. Let's hope. We all pray for a vaccine in quick order and, exactly. and we can get through this. Uh, the marketplace has changed dramatically with uh, – the growth of delivery platforms like Drizzly and Minibar and others. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of buzz and chatter about uh, e-commerce platforms and uh, contact-free selling and so forth. And yes. obviously uh, protecting the, the foundation of the three-tier system and so forth. Uh, uh, yeah, they, I, they, I think this will be a time for the industry really to come together and buckle down and, yeah, and and hopefully uh, the regulatory environment will, you know, where they're where they're adapting now to COVID to make sure that businesses can stay afloat with drinks to go, et cetera. Hopefully, uh, with e-commerce and, and direct to consumer shipping, um, we can get some good regulatory um, changes that make it work while uh, work for everybody. 
And um, it's it's just amazing what's happened to online shopping. I mean, I've, I've never online shopped as much as I have now because, you know, you for have the first, to. Months, first three months you couldn't go out. And, um, you know, we know from our uh, craft brands, uh, we can't sell our craft brands on premise right now. So we are actually looking to a Drizzly and, and those platforms to, to help get the message out and get it delivered to our consumers. Um, so it's, it's definitely going to have a huge uh, impact. Somebody told me that we had a distributor review a couple of days ago, and one of the distributors said that the COVID has uh, fast-forwarded e-shopping and e-commerce probably 10 years. And I think he's right, um, because it is unbelievable what's happened to uh, the, the people embracing e-commerce and the so spirits business. And I think the other side of it is it's also opened up the eyes of the regulators that there's no real reason why it's got to be as, as restrictive as it is. Uh, you can you can have e-commerce with uh, with um, you know sense and and and, uh, and safety. You know, absolutely, and it's a lifeline certainly uh, for the craft distillers around the country. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ten eight, eight states just over the last three or four months have adopted intrastate direct shipping, but yeah. mm-hmm. obviously with that uh, comes you know a lot of important considerations on the compliance and. Mm-hmm. And uh, social responsibility front and so forth, and those yes. are the things that uh, organizations like Discus and WSWA, uh, ABL, and our retail partners will all have to think about together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I when I arrived back into the industry and and we first met, I think it was in the October 2018 uh, board meeting. Uh, 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 very, very pleased to reconnect with you uh your activation with discus and so forth why if you wouldn't mind uh making a little bit of a pitch but uh why is it important for agave loco and tom moss to engage with an organization like discus and is is that important for for all in the industry to participate yeah, I think that the uh, what I bring to the board is the small guy's viewpoint. Uh, many of the people on the board are, you know, obviously the very, very large uh, conglomerates. And uh, I'm very close to the marketplace. I'm very close to the regulatory environment because we don't have big staff here. I do a lot of the work myself. Um, tariffs, for example, I'm, I'm right on top of what tariffs have done to us. Um, and I think it's very important for Discus to have a, a, a voice like that. The other side of it is, I don't have lobbyists in Washington. I don't know what's going on in a lot of places. And I'll give you an example of the, the craft beverage bill. Um, just just being involved with discus and understanding what impact we can have uh, by grassroots uh, uh, lobbying and grassroots uh, discussion with uh, the regulators, uh, that, that has really helped dramatically. And I think that discus has seen that bringing in the smaller players, the craft players really helps too, because you have an army of people uh, which which is really impactful uh, when we go talk to people, legislators and, and regulators. And I think that's the most important thing is I think I brought it to Discus, but I also think Discus has, has really allowed me to, to experience things that I would not have been able to experience before because of uh, the organization that's in place. And to have a voice. Uh, yes. There is no doubt, and certainly in my role, uh, I view it's very, very critical uh, to make sure that Discus is representing uh, the interests of all in the supplier community. Yes. And in large part, probably 85 to 90% of the issues that we work on are issues of 
great common interest. And mm -hmm. every once in a while, uh, they're the, the priorities of a, a smaller player uh, may be a little bit different than some of the larger companies, but those are where uh, we just got to roll up our sleeves because the benefits of the industry working together and coming together, uh, the political equity that the industry has uh, with the rise of the craft distillers over the last 15 years is uh, uh, without question an oppor opportunity uh, for the industry. So, Tom, we asked this question uh, with all of our great guests. If you could have a cocktail with anybody, historical figure, I bet your daddy would be certainly someone you would love to have a cocktail with right now, I'm sure. Give us a couple of historical figures, particularly because you're a, you're a history buff as well. Mine, I've talked about, it'd be a hoot to have a cocktail with uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, that would be great fun. But it, could, you, could you tell us who you would pick? Uh, down the line? Yes. So Winston is one of mine, but the other ones, now that I have a couple, uh, I would have loved to had uh, a drink with Jack Daniels. He was just a character. I mean, when you, when you work for Jack Daniels, you know, the history of that company, um, he was only about five feet tall, maybe four eleven. He wore these gigantic hats and big suits and made himself look pretty big, but he just had a taste for whiskey that was pretty good. I'd love to have a, a, a drink with him. Winston Churchill, definitely. I, I mean, I, as a history buff, I would love to sit and pick his brains because as we, most of us know, not only do you smoke about 20 cigars a day, but he, he basically drank a bottle of cognac every day too, or a bottle of whiskey. Um, and he just was drinking all day and it, it was just incredible. But uh, Until two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. And he only slept five, six hours a day and it just was, it just kept going. But uh, I, you know, I, I have an incredible respect for the will he had to persevere once France went down and the U.S. wasn't getting involved. He was going against Germany all by himself and getting bombed every night. And um, he just was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to London to the Churchill War Museum. Uh, Absolutely. It's unbelievable when you go down there and realize that they, they ran the war that saved the world from there. Um, to me, that would just be outstanding. And the fact that he really enjoyed uh, a drink would be great to, to, to drink with him. That'd be, be, be a lot of fun. So. No doubt, no doubt about it. Just think about uh, the anxiety he had with Dunkirk and everything that was oh, happening exactly. during that time. Getting, I think, six hundred thousand troops. I think that's the number. Yes, uh, yes. across across the channel. You know, in a bunch of, in a bunch of motorboats. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I was thinking. Uh, I saw a documentary a couple couple weeks ago on uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And, yes, uh, I think he like have a cocktail. And yeah. uh, he would be an interesting figure as well. So, yeah. Well, you know, the old statement that Lincoln made is, find out what that guy's drinking and give it to the rest of my generals. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, if you would have landed on Grant uh, much earlier, maybe maybe that Civil War wouldn't have lasted as long. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Tom, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council uh, of the United States, it's, it's great stories like this, the contributions that you have made uh, to the industry uh, uh, is, is just amazing from your tenure with, you know, from Jack Daniels to Hiram Walker and, and Jim Beam and all of the above and uh, building these amazing brands uh, is just really a testament of what's, what's great about the industry and why uh, we all are so invested in growing the industry supporting great companies like Agave Loco. So on behalf of all of us, uh, we want you to be healthy and safe. And I'm sure you're 
your daddy is smiling on you uh, from up above, really uh, just proud of uh, what you and your son have built. And uh, uh, thank you very much for joining us. And I'd like to and, and I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna buy toast, a big cheers. And I'm going to toast with my coffee cup because it's full of rum chata and coffee. Good man. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Thank and you. Be safe. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you very much. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.